you're looking to change things up in your classroom. You'd like to see more student participation and interest, or you really need a better way to tap into each student's individual abilities. Maybe you're happy with everything in your classroom and you're just that teacher who will stop at nothing to provide the very best opportunities for your students so you're always open to hear more good news. Well, let me personally welcome you to the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis. I'm a secondary science teacher with 11 years experience teaching at-risk students in a distance learning cyber model. And yet, I've realized success in my efforts to plan for and execute student-centered learning. See, I believe that a science teacher's job goes beyond transferring specific content knowledge. Rather, I believe our duty is to prepare students for life beyond our walls, to help develop them into informed, active members of society who can confidently make all kinds of decisions. So on this podcast, our discussions will focus on strategies to promote active learning in the classroom and their outcomes, as well as creating and nurturing a culture that enables students to take ownership of their learning by planning next steps and implementing our feedback. Here, we believe that our classrooms are learning laboratories, not just for students, but also for teachers. You'll always get encouragement to keep on experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Let's jump into today's topic. Hello again. How are you? One week's time has been feeling so long to me since I've been recording these podcasts. It truly feels like forever since I sat at this mic and talked with you. Before I get started today teaching you about data-dependent analysis, I want to take a moment to just send some love to those of you who have been listening faithfully week after week. It's currently summer in 2021 after a long, hard teaching year. You all, we all, deserve some real rest and relaxation, perhaps like no other year. And yet here you are, week after week, soaking in some professional learning. You know what? You are my people! As I've shared in the past, Lab at Every Lesson was born in the summer. It's when I do my reflection, my research, and my deepest thinking. I usually attend my back-to-school PD with well-laid plans. And of course, you know the saying, man plans and God laughs. But I do my best, and I assume you are as well. Truly, though, knowing that I'm helping you do the same, to reflect and reframe, or maybe I'm just giving you some new ideas, it warms my heart. It's why I'm here. I'd like to send you more than love today, though. I'd like to offer you a free lesson of your choice from my store, both on my website store at www.labineverylesson.com shop and my TPT store, that's Teachers Pay Teachers, in case you don't know, I've made all of my lesson materials on isotopes free so teachers can compare the features of each type of product. But I want to go one step further for you all. If you would write a review of this podcast or share it on the social network of your choice, and in that share or review, name just one specific topic you've found particularly insightful 
or one specific reason overall, you might keep listening. Do that and I'll send you any interactive science lesson from my store that you'd like. Just take a snapshot of the podcast review or social share either on your phone or computer and email it to me at lisa at labineverylesson.com. In the email, also include the lesson title you're interested in, and I'll attach it in my reply to you. That simple. If you don't teach chemistry and you're out there listening, not to worry. I have many lessons available that might apply to various courses and levels, even if it's one of those in the first weeks of this school year. And regardless of whether or not you choose to share your thoughts on the internet, please let other science teachers know what we're doing here. Trust me, there are so many science teachers out there, maybe specifically in the higher level sciences like biology, chemistry, and physics, who need to be freed from the chains of lecture and note-taking. It's so crazy that as we get into more challenging subject matter, we, as students, you know, when we were students, were taught to learn differently than we had our whole lives. We go from discussing active experiences in elementary school and practicing in different environments to listening to lecture and writing notes. It's no surprise, really, when you think about it, that students have difficulty retaining much of what they learn from week to week, month to month, and year to year. So let's wake them up, okay? You know, that whole be the change you wish to see, right? Let's do it together. Okay, now we're working through the elements of effective interactive science lessons for student-centered learning, and we're down to the final two. Both will seem pretty straightforward, but not necessarily easy to prepare when you sit down to lay it all out. Last week, we discussed the nature and design of technology-based learning experiences that provide students with the opportunity to explore, observe, and document what they experience with all five senses. This week, I want to talk about data-dependent analysis. It's the fourth of our five elements. These elements are most assuredly connected I wouldn't provide a learning experience without also guiding and encouraging students to step back from their notes and examine them for patterns, to challenge them to present even a single statement of new knowledge. As a prospective teacher some 12 years ago, data-driven instruction is not something I knew about. Having come up in the public school system myself, it never occurred to me that teachers closely considered student outcomes as they planned future lessons, activities, and assessments. Yet now, it's where I live. (laughs) Throughout the entire period of any lesson I teach, I'm constantly considering my own observations of what students are doing, the questions they're asking, and the outcomes they're presenting. Then I make decisions about how to proceed. Did they miss the mark? Do I need to rework the lesson and try again? Or was it too easy? Do I need to add more challenge next time? Or can I throw in some extra challenges right now? These are what sometimes seem like split-second decisions I'm making when I'm teaching with a student-centered learning approach. It's the scientific method at work, though, isn't it? Let's reframe a moment. Because I haven't really gone on a tangent yet, I am still speaking on the significance of data-dependent analysis. 
Remember, I adopted a mindset shift when I adopted student-centered learning in my classroom. Yes, I want them to score well on assessments. Yes, I want them to reach their academic goals. But no, I am not training them to be chemists when they leave my chemistry course. I am training them to be informed citizens of our world who don't primarily act from a place of emotion or of passion or of ignorance, but to gather as much information as they can for themselves and their families, sit back and consider that information from a variety of angles. And then, perhaps combined with that passion and emotion, create a course of action. You might think I'm overstating it, but I truly believe that we, us science teachers, we can do that if only one student at a time. We're not going to do that by standing at the front of a room, reading slides, doing demonstrations, and modeling problem solving. Are there some situations where we'll need to rely on those things? Yes, definitely. It just can't be par for the course. Let me step away from the heavy for just a moment, (laughs) but keep your learning theory hat on while I tell you a story. And while you're thinking like a teacher, also recall your own experiences as a homeowner or car owner or parent or anything expensive that requires maintenance owner. (laughs) How many problems arise in those circumstances that you need to figure out what's going on before you can solve the problem? I remember when we moved into our current home. There was a small weeping cherry tree in a mulched area just outside one of the front windows. Over the first year or two, its health began to wane until eventually, I think we might have just bumped it putting up some Christmas lights, and it fell over. (laughs) Just totally, boom, fell over. Looking more closely at it, we noticed there were no roots left. They were just, here's this tree and zero roots. My husband and I were totally clueless as to why this happened. And my mom suggested it wasn't a well-drained location. And she was right about that. It was a little swampy in that area of the yard. But I kept coming back to this idea that the tree was healthy when we moved in. And we didn't rush to replace the tree. With two toddlers at home, working full-time, both of us, we didn't even care the tree was gone, honestly. But over time, we began to notice a line of yellow grass connecting another mulched area of the front yard to the area in which the tree had been planted. And when we got closer to that line, we could feel a depression in the ground, as if the ground was sinking in there. Whatever this was, we were pretty sure it had something to do with our dead cherry tree. The conclusion we arrived at, based on our experience observing the rootless plant and the destruction of the land and the grass, allowed us to conclude that some sort of critter was involved. That's not really a stretch, right? So we called Orkin, who didn't even blink before they told us that the juniper bushes around the old cherry tree are a favorite dwelling place for voles, and that those voles travel in channels under the surface of the lawn. So we never would have seen them. A few months later, the voles were gone. I cut out all the juniper in that mulchy area, now is the home of a flourishing little fragrant rose garden. Got some yellow and pink in there. Totally beautiful. In telling that story, I might be risking some redundancy. It pretty much parallels the very purpose for choosing student-centered learning strategies 
and interactive, immersive lessons for your students. It's not about the content, guys and gals. It's about the skills they need to solve problems in life. Simple problems, complex problems. I would be brazen enough to claim that we, the science staff, are the ones in the best position to give our students that gift. And in telling that story, I hope I also exemplified how simple data can be. Remember, I teach chemistry. Chemistry is kind of heavy, as is physics for those of you listening who live in that wheelhouse. So yes, I have plenty of lessons where I have students collect actual data. In my mass volume and density lesson, I have them collect actual experimental measurements like mass and volume. These are the kind of measurements those of you who run hands-on wet labs are most used to having students do. But in my lesson about temperature, technology enables my students to collect and record the numerical value for a single temperature across all three scales, Kelvin, Celsius, and Fahrenheit. And in my lesson about Bohr's model of the atom, also enabled by technology, my students are recording other types of numerical data. They record orbital numbers and energy values, exponential numbers that represent kilojoules per mole. The collection of that numerical data is the learning experience we discussed last week. In the data-dependent analysis portion of my lesson that comes after, usually, after the learning experience, I teach students how to use the data they collected, how to pull back and reflect on what they've collected to consider what they've learned. And usually when they're in it, you know, especially when the clock is ticking and they have, you know, so many questions to answer or so many lines of a data table to complete, I don't think they're thinking about what they're learning. I don't think they're going, wow, that's cool. This works this way and this is how it's connected. Mm -mm. They're just writing down stuff. <laughs> in the planning, for data-dependent analysis, it's nothing more than a series of questions, sometimes scaffolded questions, leading students to the big idea, to uncovering. And if there was one word I would use to translate data-dependent analysis, uncovering. That's what we want to do with those two things together, experience and analysis. Uncover that which I want them to see, that new knowledge they've generated. I'm not going to lecture to them first about what density is, what it represents, and how it's the same or different across different materials. That's what they're going to pull out from the experience and the data, which can be just observation. So in that mass volume density lesson, for example, my students are recording the mass and volume of a water sample they dispense. So we use a graduated cylinder and a basic scale and they're writing down those two numbers. They use the density equation to solve for density. So give them that. They don't need to figure that out on their own. They have some information, just like the Orkin man came here and said, hey, the juniper is a breeding ground for the voles. I have to say, hey students, this is the equation for density. But <laughs> if we're using my, my vole, my yard analogy, uh, I didn't have that piece of information. I still was like, like on the right track without it, but it certainly helped 
close the loop for me. So there's stuff we have to give them, right? It's not entirely uncovering. And I think part of the skill in designing your learning experience, your data-dependent analysis, is knowing how much you want them to know first, what do they need to know, um, and there's leaving out those key pieces, those other key pieces, those key pieces they have to have and key pieces you have to leave out. So anyway, back to mass, volume, and density. They're solving density using the equation. But aside from incorporating these measurements into a lesson on maybe significant figures, that would be useful, right? That's probably something you do if you run a science lab in particular. You're having them use glassware, use tools in the lab just for the experience and just for the understanding which digit is uncertain and all of that, precision and accuracy. Beyond that, beyond satisfying my standards for making measurements, what are they learning from that activity? In my lesson, the data-dependent analysis portion has each student record his or her numerical data, the measured mass, the measured volume, and the calculated density on a single spreadsheet on their own line. It's akin, and then having everybody do that, right? So if you have 20 students in the class, you have 20 lines of data. And all the masses are different, all the volumes are different, because I said, hey, student choice, hey there, student-centered class, you get to choose, you take control of this activity, you decide, are you going to use a volumetric, um, a volumetric flask? You're going to use a graduated cylinder. What is your volume going to be? And then measure it. So everybody's got different volumes. Everybody's at different masses. And that's key here. It's akin to doing the experiment the requisite number of times if we were trying to discern error in an experiment, right? So we've got this table of data, all different masses, all different volumes. Aha. Uh -huh. But probably similar densities, right? Because you're science teachers, you know where I'm going here. I ask some of these questions. There's, I have a list of five here. I asked them, looking at the data, now we're all looking at this table of data together. Did your calculated densities as a class, did they depend on the mass you dispensed? Did those densities depend on the volume you dispensed? Because we all have different masses, we all have different volumes. What's the density look like? Do they depend on those values? Did your results prove that the mass volume density, any of those things of an object or substance is an intensive or an extensive property? Because at this point, we've already learned the difference between those types of physical properties and I can spiral back onto that. Spiraling is super key to everything I do and I haven't incorporated it as an element of instruction because I think you know, it totally depends on what you're teaching. Chemistry just happens to be one of those content areas that is critical to do that. And I truly can't even speak to some other courses if that's something that's possible. Beyond the basic science concepts and skills, you know, within chemistry, I have to do it all the time. Anyway, more questions. How close did your measurement calculation come to the known density? Because eventually I'll show them the known density. And then based on our collective results here in the class, compared also then to that known density, do you think this technology we used might be reliable for future experiments? And in five questions there, I'm able to extract so much new knowledge. They don't just learn the definition of density from this experiment. 
which is done in one period. They show, in fact, they show me in the review preview of this particular lesson that they can articulate the meaning of density on the macro scale before we even begin. And honestly, the first time I did this lesson, I kind of was sweating it because I'm going, "Uh oh, this is too basic for college prep chem. They're coming in. They know what this means. But uh -uh. (laughs) through this hybrid individual slash collaborative examination, They use real data to learn something deeper. Exactly how mass and volume, or the combination of those two, influence density, and how we classify that as a physical property. And though I teach in an online school and have to resort to technology to do this, you may not have to. I don't honestly recall last week if I emphasized that enough in my discussion on learning experiences. I rely on technology. It's a must for me. In chemistry, I believe it is super useful to those of you teaching chemistry because we teach so much about what we can't see. So being able to have that visual component, especially the ones that are student controlled, is like super duper awesome. But certainly, there are macroscopic things we can do in the lab to support this as well. So you can potentially get your students in the lab more than the usual once or twice per six-day cycle, which I think is pretty customary. You just need to be intentional about your learning goals and creative with your success criteria. And challenge yourself. You know, I came to this point by challenging myself, having these goals of creating more rigor, knowing that they know a certain amount already and I have to capitalize on that. It's not good enough for me to just lay it all out the same for everybody. I wanted also to collect their work. What can I make them do that I can collect and show my principal? Maybe not just individually, but then as a group too. What is this class producing? And then growth mindset and growth mindset. Knowing that I may not have it now, but I'm getting there. Okay, here's another example. In my temperature lesson, technology again provides the opportunity for each of my students to record a single temperature on all three scales and calculate the difference between Celsius and Kelvin. Then share their data with the class on a single spreadsheet. So now this is actually the second of two learning experiences in my temperature lesson. Otherwise, perhaps I would have each student go through the range and record all the numbers. I think, you know, part of the skill that you'll develop in writing these types of lessons is to know what's really valuable in data collection and what is maybe overkill. You know, so since I have another learning experience that gets to the heart of temperature as a measure of kinetic energy, particle movement, And now I want to incorporate the actual measurement value scale system. It's not so important for me to, for them to spend a great deal of time collecting the data anymore. Instead, I want to get them to see how they're connected. Um, They quickly discover that the absolute value of the difference between C and K is always 273, right? Because you're looking at this big spreadsheet of data all these different Celsius, all these different Kelvin, but the difference is always minus 273. And so we create a formula. I didn't give it to them. 
Those of you who teach this, you go, oh, well, this is something you just have to memorize. C plus 273 equals K. Okay, but might that stick better long term if you've actually learned through doing that that's what the less, that's what the equation is? You know, oh, I remember when we did that activity, they were all 273, you know, 10 or 12 or 20 lines of data. So we're learning the formula, the equation for a conversion, simple math conversion through experience. Then uh, the last lesson I referred to, the Bohr model lesson I do, is a bit more intimidating for students because the numbers get small with exponents like 10 to the minus 18, 10 to the minus 19, we're talking kilojoules per mole. We're talking about energy that it takes electrons to jump and fall among different orbitals in an atom. Okay, again, this is something you're teaching in a traditional school system, face-to-face. -face. You're not going to play with an atom at a lab bench and make the electrons move. And even if you could, it wouldn't be so easy to determine those ener energetic changes. So technology is super awesome if you can find it to complement what you're look, you know, what you're trying to get to. In my experience, remember my group, I would classify historically as at risk, um, low math skills, low reading skills. So, in my experience, whenever numbers are in exponential notation, students freak out and they shut down. So because of the inherent anxiety, just the numbers create for them and the sheer time it would take them to record enough data to be useful in a type of tabular analysis. I differentiate this lesson by not having students record the numerical data at all. Okay, pause for a minute. If you haven't listened to the differentiating episode, or you have, but you forget, go back and listen to that again, or go back and listen to it for the first time. I differentiated this lesson by not having students record the numerical data. Oh, how are they gonna do data-dependent analysis without the numerical data? Well, for them to record the numerical data for this lesson is what my visible learning authors would call difficulty. It's not challenging to think through. They click a button and all the numbers show up on the screen. Difficulty, as defined by the authors of visible learning, is how much there is to do. How many tasks do I have to, do I have to complete, execute? And in this lesson, it's like 10. I want them to see 10 electron transitions because I want them to see the random nature of it and I want them to see jumps and falls and I want them to see energy values. Okay, so tabular data is important. But with time, and as I said, putting into context my students and their needs that sometimes go beyond the academic to the emotional, I'm going to differentiate to lessen the difficulty and focus more on the thought part of it. So instead, I ask them to conduct their analysis while they're observing the system. Here, giving them the guidance, the questions they need to answer before and during their observation, they feel more secure and confident in those artifacts they're producing. 
That is to say, they're not afraid to write something down (laughs) because they understand how they're going to articulate what they see. They see what they see. All they have to do is write it down. Some things I ask them include, when atoms absorb energy from their environment, what happens to their electrons? You know, when they're doing the activity, they could see energy going in as absorption. I don't define absorption for them. That's something, you know, that's part of the 60% that I assume they come with. A basic understanding of what the word absorb means. Followed up by the question, when atoms release energy, what happens to their electrons? So again, I'm not saying folks, students, boys and girls, when energy is absorbed, this little wavy arrow comes into the atom. And when energy is released, the little wavy arrow comes out of the atom. I don't do that. I capitalize on their 60%. I make them feel like I know they know something. There is so, so much to the 60%. If, you know, I know we're talking in the summer here, so you haven't had a chance to, to really test that yet, but I would really encourage you to test that. You don't have to lay it all out for them. And so in asking them what happens, this type of questioning also, you know, when you're looking at doing an entire year of your content and you're relying on student-centered in, um Instructional strategies, learning experiences. You don't want it completely to be about numbers and analysis. You absolutely need to encourage the communication, the literacy skills, and building confidence in those to get you through to the end, right? To the exhibit what they've learned, to demonstrate, to create that artifact as well. As I mentioned, my students in particular have low, low literacy skills in general. So uh, something that I'm that I mindfully slip in there because it's important. Okay, I digress. Third question: Once an atom has become excited, cannot return to its original ground state. That's an agree disagree kind of question. So I'm laying out for them. Here's a statement based on what you see. Do you agree or disagree? Again. If you are out there listening and going, well, that's too soft for my students. Yeah, maybe so. You have to differentiate for your students what they need. For me and mine, mine don't know what an excited state is. They don't know what a ground state is because I haven't taught them that yet. Because I'm focused on uncovering things. And for me to give them a true false, yes, I agree, no, I disagree, gives me a better chance that they're going to just answer it. That they're going to go, well, I think I know what excited might mean. And I think I have an idea of what the ground state is, especially since she told me things jump and fall. Hmm, you know. So there's even some strategy. Like I said, the scaffolding question, questioning. Some are open-ended. Some are just basic pick a side, right? Final question. The color of light emitted is determined by the amount of energy released when electrons within it relax. Again, agree, disagree. So once we've got all those, each student's basically filling out a worksheet. You know, I guess you would call this like a worksheet-based sort of thing that you collect. Uh, In my virtual environment, I'm doing this on a virtual meeting slide. But once we do this, I review all these questions with the whole group after the learning experience time has ended. So individual and then collaborative, if possible. Now, except with the whole group, 
I do show the data table that is chock full of numbers. Now, just because I didn't have them do it doesn't mean it's not useful. They saw the process. They got the idea. Now we're going to tie it to the data. Because as a science teacher, I need to teach them how to look at evidence. Orbital numbers, energy values, light color. We go through each of those questions I just mentioned one by one slowly. Even though they have all presumably already completed them individually. Doing it this way allows me to formatively assess the quality of the learning experience for individuals. Because though I'm circulating the room and kind of like seeing what each one is producing for us to get together and do some polling, you know, A, B, C, D, what do you think about this? It's a nice snapshot and it's good for data-driven instruction. Um, I'm able to do that formative assessment while also ensuring every student sees evidence that supports the correct answers and knows how to identify that evidence to make conclusions. Okay, so this is a great example of, like I said, the data is important. Anytime you can get tables or graphs, awesome. But depending on your audience, you might want to tweak that. You know, maybe it's not super important that they collect the numbers, but you definitely have to get them to see the numbers. And all these examples I gave you are numerical data examples. But we can craft data-dependent analysis from any activity in which observations were made. Case in point. In my lesson on atomic theory scientists, students construct a historical timeline of names, graphical atomic models, so pictures of the atomic models, and written descriptions of the atomic models that were discovered over time. But there are some key scientists who are not mentioned in the video I give them as a reference to construct their timeline. Namely, the video is missing Millikan, who did the oil drop experiment to calculate mass to charge ratio of an element, basically prove its existence. Chadwick, who identified the existence of a neutron as a chargeless particle with mass. And Schrodinger, who gave us the more specific S, P, D, and F orbitals that form the foundation of electron configurations for atoms. These are all really important people whom I don't understand how could have been left out of that timeline video, but they were. They are named in my Pennsylvania State Standards as scientists with whom my students need to be familiar, their contributions. So I can't just, whew, the video didn't include them. The video is my learning experience and construction of this timeline. So how am I going to work them in? I work them in by questioning in a data-dependent analysis way. So in this lesson, that element comes from hypothesis and inference, which this past year in my school, based on text-dependent analysis, written work, we have identified, you know, at my school, like I said, for my population, woefully inadequate skills and in inference. Taking two pieces of knowledge and then connecting them. But inference, I think you guys would agree with me, looking at it through a science teacher eyeglasses, is hypothesis. It is, well, if this and that, then maybe outcome, right? 
So in this lesson, data-dependent analysis comes from hypothesis and inference. I provide them with descriptions of what these scientists accomplished. So what, what they see is a slide with the timeline they constructed. Yeah, and I maybe I constructed it, <laughs> but they moved all the pieces, right? And I'm going, this is the correct answer. It's basically the answer key. And we talk through it a little bit. And then I go, hey, what about this guy? And I ask students to guess where on the timeline he might have made that contribution. They use observations to make new knowledge. What are the observations? The observation is the model, the visual model on the timeline, the written description of the model on the timeline and the date. And this unknown guy, Milliken, Chadwick, or Schrodinger, we have a date and we have their contribution as a written description. So they're using the observation they already made and this new piece of information to make new knowledge. And that's precisely what data-dependent analysis is about. You know, just like in my yard example, I'm taking all these pieces with the end goal of solving a problem. So any learning experience, be it textual, be it visual, be it kinesthetic, you know, that's where we're maybe capitalizing on student learning styles. But having that experience that they're taking ownership of benefits from the inclusion of data-dependent analysis in any student-centered lesson plan, where your expertise is put to work in designing the experience so that it generates the data or the observations you need them to see, which allows them to answer the standard-based questions you need them to answer. And believe it or not, this practice absolutely does support assessment style mastery. If you're out there thinking, this sounds great. I will make a meaningful impact by teaching this way. But stuff isn't on the tests. They'll fail the tests. I will go out on such a limb to say I guarantee that is not the case. Next week, I'll review my fifth and final element of effective interactive science lessons for student-centered learning, and that is skill practice. I too was terribly, terribly concerned that what I was planning for my students wouldn't transfer as knowledge they'd apply to multiple choice quiz and test questions. And so it is definitely key for us to link that data-dependent analysis summary to what they'll encounter on said quiz or test. Without incorporating that skill practice at the end of the lesson, we'll never be sure. But I did and do incorporate it. So I know it translates and it even provides insight into aspects of your learning experience or data analysis that might need revision. But more on that next week. Remember, you can download the entire guide Five Elements of Effective Interactive Science Lessons for Student-Centered Learning from my website at www.labineverylesson.com slash five elements. That's the number five, the word elements. Five, E-L-E-M-E-N-T-S. By doing so, you'll also get added to my email list. And that's going to be super important going forward this year in particular if you're interested in purchasing any lesson materials for me because I'll first be publishing my new lessons, those that aren't yet on Teachers Pay Teachers, 
to only my website for one week at a lower price before publishing them on Teachers Pay Teachers for the masses. When you're on my email list, you'll get first dibs and a discount. Until next week, I will look forward to reading your podcast reviews, and I hope, I so hope, you'll kick back and soak in those final days of summer. See you next time.